So today, we're going to land our series on the Holy Spirit. Throughout the series, we've been talking about how the Holy Spirit is involved in transformation. But we've been talking about the transformation in a very particular way. We've been talking about how the transformation that the Holy Spirit brings is, is liberating to us because it liberates us, ironically, from the overwhelm of transforming ourselves, the world constantly pushing us to, to, to be better versions of ourselves. And the Holy Spirit invites us onto a journey of being transformed with a transformation that's external to us. But it's probably fair to say that if you've been listening through this series, you, you maybe are left thinking, you know, so well, what am I actually supposed to do then? So I'm aware that this transformation is happening to me, um, but do I, do I just do nothing? Like, like is anything my responsibility? Does, is anything up to us? And to understand this, I think it's important for us to jump over to St. Paul's great letter about the Holy Spirit, which is 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians is written to a community who were, who were very much into the Holy Spirit. Um, but let me just say this as an understatement. They definitely needed some guidance on the whole subject. If, if there was a wacky way to think about the Holy Spirit to be thought about, the Corinthians are on board with it. So Paul writes to them to try and help them navigate a whole host of community things, uh, but particularly the Holy Spirit. So I want to jump then into a moment of 1 Corinthians to help us understand where do we play in the whole scenario? What are we supposed to do? And this is a passage in 1 Corinthians that I'm just going to put it out there. You might know. Uh, there's, there's quite a few moments of 1 Corinthians that are sort of famous, and one in particular seems to have broken out from the boundaries of church, and you bump into it kind of all over the place. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says this. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. It's 13 verses. So chapter 13, it's 13 verses. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the childhood ways behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love but the greatest of these 
is love. So Paul's passage in 1 Corinthians 13 has, has achieved some fame around the world. It's quite likely you've heard it. At very least, it's possible you've heard it read at a wedding at some point. Princess Diana, in her marriage ceremony to Prince Charles, had this passage read at her wedding. And, and afterwards, at the BBC, who had showed the wedding and broadcast it to the public, they were inundated with people from all over the world asking, who is the author? of this poem. <laughs> I don't know how shocked and surprised people were when they heard it was St. Paul. But here's the fascinating thing about 1 Corinthians 13. We, we find it referenced in weddings. We find it on plaques in, in Hallmark stores, this notion of love never failing. We, we see it applied to, to marriage relationships on a regular basis. And what's quite interesting is that this text has nothing to do with weddings or marriage. Now, see, one of the reasons that we are able to use this text to refer to, to weddings and such is because of how bendy the English word love is. Bendy is a technical term used by people really into grammar. <laughs> love functions in many, many different ways and with a vast range of meanings within English, right? So love can mean sort of warm thoughts about something right through to sexual desire and anything in between. You know, so an English speaker can legitimately say, I love sushi, my cat, going to work, God, and my husband, and can mean all of those things. And often we would understand what they mean by all of those things. Although perhaps were you to say to your husband that you loved him the same as sushi, you might find some complexity there, right? But Paul he frames this entire passage of 1 Corinthians 13 around one very specific Greek word. The Greek word is agape, and we translate it as love. And the problem is when we translate it as love, we kind of blunt its force a little bit because, well, in truth, we don't have a direct equivalent for it. So Greek has an ordinary word for love, the kind of I love pizza and I love my friends. And Greek also has a word for desire, the word eros. We, we're kind of aware of that word. We even use it in certain contexts in English. But Paul chooses agape, which probably is best translated something along the lines of putting the needs of others ahead of my own. For Paul, this is the center of the Christian experience. In fact, for the whole New Testament, that was the case. In John chapter 15 and verse 13, Jesus says, no one has greater agape than the one who gives up their life for a friend. So Paul uses a precise word to direct this passage. So in English, we can be quite vague with this word love. So what we do when we hear the word love is we start to listen to the context to try and work out the meaning of, of what this word is doing. We can hear, I love pizza, I love my cat. We kind of understand that they are operating differently. But this is perhaps where it gets a little fascinating for us in 1 Corinthians 13. Because what is the context here? Paul drops this this long passage, an almost poetic passage about love, into the middle of a longer conversation. But, but what is the longer conversation? Well, chapters 12 and 14 
are all part of the same chat that 13 is in the middle of, and it's a conversation about the work of the Holy Spirit. Like Paul is trying to help the Corinthians and by reference then us as well, he's trying to help us understand how the Holy Spirit works in us individually and in us as a community. And Paul uses all sorts of language, like we're part of a family, he says we're a body. But in the middle of all this, he starts to talk about love. Love is worked out in a Holy Spirit-inspired community. So it seems that what we're kind of getting here is the Holy Spirit brings gifts They are given to us, so the Holy Spirit does the work of transformation. What remains for us is to act in love. The person who has the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the person who has the Holy Spirit, we see that worked out because their responsibility is agape. So for Paul, because of that, it's important for him to define what agape is, which is what he does in 1 Corinthians 13. So the kind of three chapters embrace this notion of what the Holy Spirit's doing, and in the middle, Paul brings about a definition of love. But notice how he does it, how he sources it. I kind of like how Tim Mackey explains this. He says this, the earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So think about what that means for a second. Like what that means is that whenever you encounter the word agape or love in an English translation of the New Testament, it's not being defined by general usage around the world. So it's not right for you necessarily to ask, well, what did love mean in Rome in the first century? Or what did love mean in Jerusalem in the first century? The defining definition is Jesus. Like, what does Jesus look like? Because if you can get an idea of what Jesus looks like, how Jesus behaves, how Jesus acts, what Jesus says, this is going to define love for you. And I would almost want to pause it for a moment and say, actually, this is an interesting model of how we interpret many of the concepts and ideas that we encounter in the Bible. You often see people saying, well, let me figure out what that word means. Let me go look it up in a dictionary. And there's places that that can be helpful for you. But if you want to understand what love means, look at Jesus. If you want to understand what mercy means, look at Jesus. If you want to understand what grace means, don't ask me what I think grace means. How does Jesus live it out? And there's so many places this is true. I've even heard people sometimes talk about God's wrath and God's anger. And how do we see that worked out in the New Testament? Jesus absorbs it into himself. So Jesus is our dictionary at some level. So what do we see in Jesus when it comes to agape, when it comes to love? And Jesus talks about love quite a few times. When asked about the greatest commandment, Jesus says, love God, but then he adds, oh, and also love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> and we get kind of caught up in the, that passage in all sorts of wrong ways. We start thinking, well, which of these is it love God or is it love your neighbor as yourself? Or, you know, I like the sound of love yourself, <laughs> less sure about loving my neighbor, kind of okay with loving my God on my own terms. We want to know which are the most important of these two, but Jesus doesn't make a distinction. Somebody asks, what's the greatest commandment? And he gives you two answers. Love God, love your neighbor. They're sort of two sides of the same coin. 
But what you should notice, however, is not how much Jesus talks about love, but how much he shows agape in his actions. And for the early Christians, this was really key. Like love isn't something you simply talk about. It's not something you feel. It's not an emotion even when we're talking about agape. Love was an action, like a conscious decision to prioritize the other. A conscious decision to prioritize the other. In Jesus' time, people often believed that their concerns, their interests, their projects were more important than the concerns and projects and interests of others. In, in Jesus' time, right? But Jesus, see, Jesus lived in a world where the Roman Empire had sort of flattened, crushed, and destroyed basically anybody who stood in their way of progress. That was how it was. The Roman Empire just made everybody go along with their way of doing everything. But I kind of live in a world like that. I live in a world where I can prioritize my empire, the things that are important to me, the things that matter to me, are the things that I want to put at priority. And now Jesus comes along and calls us to this way of agape. He says, love is laying down your life, is is putting your priorities down for the sake of another. So our definition worked out in watching Jesus is that agape is an early Christian way of prioritizing the other. Now, if if you've tracked with the last few weeks of teaching, you might begin to see why Paul includes this conversation in the middle of a conversation about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, we've seen it, is relentless in bringing people from all different contexts into the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is breaking out through boundaries all over the place so that everybody can find welcome in this new kingdom. And this is starkly different than what the early Christians are used to. They're used to exclusion and distance and separation and segregation. And the Holy Spirit just messes all of that up. The Holy Spirit is basically willing to work with everyone and working with everyone transformatively. And then the role of the early Christians then What they need to do is channel that journey of transformation through love. So with that in mind, just drop back into the famous passage of 1 Corinthians 13 for a second. So we've got that kind of boundary. What is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit's calling us to bring people into God's kingdom. The Holy Spirit is bringing people into God's kingdom as part of the way he works. And we can choose to be on board with that or, or not on board with that. But Paul now in the middle of this conversation about how the Holy Spirit works, now wants to talk to you about love, right? He wants to talk to you about how you're gonna behave in all of that. Now, the excellent, and I'm gonna say excellent because one of my favorites, but the excellent Canadian-American scholar, Gordon Fee, when he approaches 1 Corinthians 13, he sort of shows us how you can break this passage down into three clear sections. Uh, And you can see there's almost a sort of heading of of the necessity of love, uh, and then Paul talks about the character of love, and then he talks about the permanence of love. And I just wanna dive into that just for a few moments and explore it with you. In verses one to three of chapter three, chapter 13, sorry, Paul establishes what we'll call the necessity of 
love. So again, I'm going to be repetitive here, but I don't want us to lose this. He's talking about how does God work? How does God work through his Holy Spirit with us? And he's, and he's calling us, and he's just talked. In the end of chapter 12, he's talked about how we're like a body, and we all have these different parts, and they're all doing these different things. When there's a lot of parts in, a, in, a, in, a, in anything, in an organism, in an organization, whenever there's a lot of parts, you know, it's going to get complex. And so now Paul talks about love because love is going to be the catalyst for the purpose behind why things are done. I just noticed that what Paul's saying. If Paul really means what he's saying, and he's not just engaging in some ridiculous hyperbole, love is the reason. Paul, Paul seems to be saying that things done for reasons other than agape love are, are essentially pointless. And we're like, well, really, Paul? You genuinely mean that? But notice what? He talks about sacrifice. He talks about charity. Like, he even talks about miraculous things. And he says they, they're worthless. They're useless. They have no point. Love is the necessary thing. Now, I'd love for you to just step back from that in your own reflections and just think about what Paul's saying there. That, that if he gave all his money to the poor but he wasn't driven by love to do that, then there's no point in even doing it. And that, that kind of rattles with us a little bit. Like, no, no, that, that, can't be, that can't be true. Surely it's better just to give the money away regardless of what my, my reasons are. But Paul wants to root us in, can I say the force that's gonna change the world? The force of agape, the force of love given for the other. That's gotta be the motivating factor of it all. So love is necessary. And then in verses four to seven, Paul then starts to explain what we call the character of love, right? Now, hopefully, hopefully you're, you're on board with me at this point that, that our lens of understanding agape is putting the needs of others ahead of my own. So, so Paul's now gonna try and define some of the character. And, he, and this is beautiful sort of section here in the middle of chapter 13 where he starts to unveil some of the characteristics. But again, always have over that the kind of overarching understanding of what we see in Jesus is the putting of others first. So it makes no surprise to us then that Paul talks about kindness and, and patience. Like patience, somebody who's really patient has figured out the art of putting others first. Because when I can't wait for somebody else, I'm basically saying I'm more important than them. If I make people wait around for me, that's also saying that I think I'm more important than them. Always a challenge to my timekeeping, right? But then Paul also talks about lacking things like envy and jealousy. Love doesn't have space for that. Because why would be I envious and, and jealous of somebody else doing well when I've shaped my life around agape, which is about prioritizing the needs of others? Um, you know, love is not self-centered or self-seeking. You know, love, the Holy Spirit, all these things are not about gaining something better for ourselves. But also, love doesn't rage or bear grudges. And then I'm just going to quote Paul directly here. I love the resonance of this. He then just says, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Just beautiful language that you can almost have in your pocket. And if you're never sure, am I loving in this situation? Am I, am I acting in agape? Well, are you protecting, trusting, hoping, and persevering with someone? The answer is no to any of them. Love might be on the decline. 
And then in part three, verses eight through 13, Paul presents the permanence of love. Love never fails. I get why that goes on our fridges. I get why when you go into the Hallmark store, you find it on plaques that you can hang in your house and cards that you can send to your friend because in three words, just profound. And I don't want to take away that profundity. I actually want to add to it because Paul's now weighted this word. Agape never fails. This word's now holding up the entire story of Jesus, of everything you saw Jesus do and everything you saw him engaged with and everything you heard him say, all of that is a definition of love. And Paul says like that won't ever fail. (laughs) And then he basically creates this huge contrast, which is actually not only will love never fail, but it will never fail in the face of everything else that will ultimately pass away. And in case you think that, you know, well, maybe, maybe some of the stuff I value won't pass away, Paul says spiritual gifts. He's in the midst of a conversation about spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 and 14 are all about spiritual gifts. And Paul goes, you know what? There's a day coming. They're going to go. <laughs> but love will remain. Immaturity. Like in the same way as you watch a child grow into an adult and hopefully become mature, there's a passing away happens. Paul talks about limited understandings when we just don't quite get something. Love will outlast all of these things. Even faith and hope will be outlasted by love. Paul says these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Like how, well, how, how does that work? How are faith and hope not as good as love? Well, Paul seems to be coming from a perspective here which says this, when, when Jesus fixes all things, You can go back and watch our resurrection series if you want to unpack that sentence. But when Jesus fixes all things, you you won't need faith or hope because it'll all be here. It'll all be fixed, but you'll still need love. Love will remain through to the other side of the resurrection. There's something about the permanence of love which is just phenomenal for us. That, That beyond When God puts everything back together, he will still require of us that we live in such a way that puts the other first. So think about this. Like all of the stuff that we see happen in the Bible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Like how things change, how things are transformed, how miracles happen, how barriers of race, gender, and status are brought down. But when it comes down to it, Paul's saying, Like love is the agent in all of that and it's the agent that makes it all worthwhile. It's beautiful if you think about it and just rest in it for a few moments. So love is what is going to guide us as individuals and a community towards maturity. If we can grow as people of God, if we can grow as a church, if we can grow in the situation wherever you're watching from, love is going to be the catalyst for that growth. And Paul echoes this elsewhere in his letters again. If you jump over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, Paul says, speak the truth in love. So let love, love is more important even than truth. If you can only speak the truth but not speak it in love, well, cross-reference Ephesians 4.15 with 1 Corinthians 13. If you can speak the truth, but you can't do it in love, just stay quiet. Because love is the catalyst for all. Paul says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow 
to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. It's a Pauline way of saying, if we live in love, we'll become like Jesus. And from him, Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The Holy Spirit and love combine to transform us towards maturity. The Holy Spirit's gonna do his work, but can you, can you live in agape? Can you redefine and shape your life to look towards the other before yourself? It kind of makes me want to ask a question. Like, where are we not seeing maturity in the world today? Like, can you think of somewhere? Is it, what is it that comes to your mind? Probably says a lot about even your own journey as to what comes to your mind immediately as we ask that question. Where are we not seeing maturity in the world today? And is love needed in those spaces? How would love change the situation? Or where are you not, where are you not being mature in your current situation? Or where are people not being mature directly to you? Like, is there love needed in those spaces? And what hopefully, uh, hopefully you're hearing from me is that this is a Holy Spirit question. Where do we need love? If we take Paul's agenda in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, the question of love is a question of the Holy Spirit. Where do we need maturity in love? Or maybe, maybe just ask this question. Like, where is love in short supply? If it's harder to think about maturity, where can we see places that love is needed? Like this week, it hits our news cycles. There's 215 children buried in unmarked mass graves, like only a relatively short distance from where I'm standing right now. And it tells me that the world needs less feelings of love and more actions of agape, that there's something we need to do. There are others that we need to prioritize. There's people that we have not put first. We have been self-seeking. We have journeyed in particular ways that haven't prioritized what the Holy Spirit calls us to. And this is what the Holy Spirit has always called us to. Just read Acts as we have done in a few times in this series. The Holy Spirit calls us to truth calls us to community, calls us to restoration, and calls us to wholeness. And all of that comes through love. So we need love. We need agape. We need something modeled on Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit wants to partner and work with us. It's how we're going to be the people of God. It's how we're going to be a person of God. So in a series about the Holy Spirit transformation. Let me just land it here. God will change you. He always has been trying to do this. It's always what he wants to do, and he's gonna do it through the Holy Spirit. Our responsibility is to intentionally choose agape. Our responsibility is to choose to love the other as our way of life, as our way of being, because it's how we see Jesus live. I kind of like this thought from David Brooks. He phrases it like this. He says, self-control is like a muscle. If you're called, 
If you're called upon to exercise self-control often in the course of a day, you kind of get tired and you don't have enough strength to exercise as much self-control in the evening. But love, love is the opposite. The more you love, the more you can love because love expands with use. So may you, may you be full of the Holy Spirit and may you love more because love will never fail. Grace and peace.